So let me first introduce tonight's speaker. Mike Bunn is a historian and author who has worked with several heritage organizations in the Southeast. He currently serves as director of historic Blakely State Park in Spanish Fort, Alabama. Mike is the editor of the oh, big word, Muscogeana, the Journal of the Muscogee County Georgia Genealogical Society. He's also chair of the Baldwin County Historical Development Commission. He earned his undergraduate degree at Faulkner University and two master's degrees at the University of Alabama. Mike and his wife, Tanya, live in Daphne, Alabama with their daughter, Zoe. And he is the author or co-author of several books, including the topic of tonight's lecture, 14th Colony, The Forgotten Story of the Gulf South During America's Revolutionary Era. So I am now going to turn it over to you. Okay, I see I'm unmuted. Thank you very much. Appreciate you guys having me. Um, always fun to share the story of this colony that most people don't know existed uh, with folks. It, it's an interesting story that I find that most people are not very familiar with, even though the ones that have a familiarity with uh, colonial history are, if they've even heard of this colony, they're a little bit confused about it because its name is West Florida. So they associate it strictly with the modern state of Florida. But as we will discuss tonight in a quick moving overview of the colony, that uh, what boundaries were. And it's really a big section of the Gulf South. And it's an area of the country most people don't usually associate with having a colonial era heritage in the same way uh, as the East Coast, but, uh, but we do. And, and it's an interesting one, it's a little different. And what I want to do tonight is to take you through the, the, the founding era of that colony, where, where it was located, why it was founded, who moved there and did what, and ultimately walk you through the military campaigns that brought a sudden end to its years as part of the British Empire, as a as sort of a sideshow, if you will, of the American Revolution, but, but involved nonetheless. Uh, but I want to start with, with first talking about actually, you know, how the colony actually came about as soon as my slide advances here. There we go. Um, the, the colony really traces its history back to the Seven Years' War. Now, that's a war that we won't talk about much. It ended in 1763. It's a colonial-era war that was really not fought on the Gulf Coast at all, and a lot of you probably heard about it. The significance to West Florida's story is really the treaty that ended it, uh, because you've got, got some maps on the screen there. On the left is the colonial map of North America showing the land holdings of the different European nations that laid claim to portions of North America before the war, and then the one on the right is after the war. So the significance is that France lost that war against uh, Great Britain, and as a consequence was eliminated from North America as a colonial power. You see that huge swath of the interior of the continent stretching all the way up to Canada. Uh, that was what France claimed, and as a result of losing all of that territory, you see the map on the right is all now divided between the claims of Britain and Spain. And as a consequence of taking over that huge swath of land all at once, Great Britain determined among many things that it did uh, to create two new colonies in on the Gulf South, the Gulf Coast um, out of that land. And they would actually be taking over portions of what were formal, formerly French and uh, Spanish possessions. So you've got the, this, these two colonies that had a very diverse colonial heritage that they're going to create two new colonies 
in that area and add them to the British Empire. Those are West and East Florida. And we'll be talking tonight specifically about the colony of West Florida. And I've got a map to show you that. We're going to zoom in, in just a second and show you a little more detail. But West Florida uh, stretched uh, along the Gulf Coast from the Mississippi River over to the Apalachicola River and what is the Florida Panhandle. And the original northern border uh, was the 31st parallel. And I'll, I'll go through a few details about that to help you understand that area. But you're roughly talking about the coastal areas, Gulf Coast areas of what are now modern Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. So that is British West Florida. So they created this, these two new colonies. East Florida had, the, had a capital at St. Augustine, which was a, a longstanding colonial city. The capital of West Florida was at Pensacola founded with that colony, with that capital there, and, and it, that was the capital throughout its period as a British colony. Here's a little closer map showing that area in a little bit more detail. And uh, where I'm sitting tonight on the shores of Mobile Bay in Baldwin County, Alabama, across from Mobile, we're, we're pretty much dead center in this colonial entity. And I would dare say that most people in this area aren't really aware that, that, that they were once, that this area once was part of the British Empire and was a colony uh, that's involved in America's founding era. And uh, I think that's the, the truth across the across the nation uh, to a large degree. Now, certainly folks that are here tonight may know a little bit more of this, about this than our average crowd, but um, its, cure, its story is a little bit overlooked. And there's several reasons for that. And, and we'll go through those, some of those as we talk tonight. Uh, now, the first thing I want to mention is uh, to talk about those boundaries just a little bit more detail to help you understand them. That original boundary, the 31st parallel, just north of Mobile, if you can see it on the screen, said established by the Proclamation of 1763. That was uh, what the treaty um, had established. Now, as soon as the British got on the ground, were trying to establish colony, they immediately wanted to move that border north to take advantage of everything from riverside settlements along the Mississippi River and the interior river systems, um, abundance of fertile land in the interior. And the first governor uh, lobbied the British government in London to allow him to move it north. He wanted to move it a lot further north than they originally let him do, but they eventually settled on the 32nd parallel, 28 minutes. That is a, a landmark of sorts in the region where the Yazoo River empties into the Mississippi River. If you know anything about geography of the Deep South, Vicksburg, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama, Columbus, Georgia, that's that's where that line cuts across basically the central portion of Mississippi and Alabama. That's where the boundary was moved up to in 1764. And I'll come back to that in the very end of this presentation to help you understand how that plays into a little bit of early American period history here in the Deep South, kind of bring it full circle. Now, the British, when they arrive in the colony, they're taking over two areas that had been uh, administered, one by France in the Mobile area. Mobile was at one point the capital of New France. And then over in Pensacola is primarily uh, administered by the Spanish. And both had about six decades of these various regimes that had overseen those areas. So they're, they're establishing a colony with, with two very different backgrounds. And the, the people of Mobile, uh, they actually offered them the chance to take an oath of allegiance to the British crown or they could leave and most ended up staying. 
they had a Herculean task in what they were trying to do, because despite the fact that this had been a colonial settlement for a long time, there was really very little infrastructure in the area. There were places on the map, Pensacola and Mobile and fortifications, et cetera, but they were not very large. They were not very formidable. And the British officers who first arrived to look at what the real situation was going to be realized they had their work cut out for them because this was a place that was was very uh, very uh, low population, uh, not many roads that connected any of the major settlements. The major settlements themselves were small, and the fortifications were rather miserable. And they had to do all of the work of building a colony within a environment. Uh, and I can tell you, we're living on the Gulf Coast uh, before air conditioning and hurricane-proof roofs, et cetera. It's a tough place to try to carve out a living in the 1760s. And the first guys who were sent down here are, are just, they literally died like flies. This was a miserable place. They very susceptible to a number of diseases and fevers. And their first impression was this is going to be a tough spot to be. And they really viewed this as quite literally being on the fringes of civilization. That, that this was about a far, as far away from everything they were familiar with as you can imagine. So they, they viewed themselves as being at the far ends of the world. And some of their letters uh, reflect that. And some of it's, it's real difficulty and some of it's just people who really didn't like their assignment. But there was a lot of sickness of the first troops that arrived here, and there was so much work to do that some of the first officers, that, that was Robert Farmer and Mobile, Haldeman came to, to, to Pensacola, had pretty much the same take. And their first letters, if you look at what they write about, um, it, it's sort of a downtrodden sort of outlook on, on what they had to do, and some even questioned if it was worth it. But despite all of that, despite all the negativity, once they set to work trying to build a colony, they really exerted a tremendous effort to do so. And they ended up with quite a bit of success, um, relatively speaking. I mean, West Florida never became a major population center, but it had some major gains and probably would have continued some of those gains had the American Revolution not occurred. And of course, ended up uh, forcing the colonies hand, uh, a change of hands for the colony. But the, the, to the point of what they did, they first, they tried to establish a government for the place. That's the first order of business. There's a the seal of the colony of British West Florida. Um, they appointed a governor and an appointed council, which was the primary way in which um, administration was kept. But they also made provisions to have an elected assembly that would be formed when they had periodic elections for representatives from a lower house in the legislature. Now, that is the first elected assembly of any sort of representative government that we had on the Gulf Coast. Uh, the problem was that the governor uh, called that legislature in, in session. And over the period of the, what, 19 years that there was a colony of British West Florida, he only decided to call it in session some seven times. And when they finally did get into session, uh, they really ended up arguing among themselves about a lot of, uh, you know, items that, that really were local territorial concerns. By the time they really got down to doing serious work, uh, they, they ended up in all seven sessions passing a total of some 50 or so laws that became law. So most of the governments of the colony is really by the governor and his appointed council. But it is significant that there is an elected assembly. 
I would say here, and I will mention this few other points, a few other places along the conversation. I think this is one of the several reasons we don't know as much about British West Florida, because it did not have a very active representative government where ideas were constantly openly debated by all people of the colony. This was a widely scattered uh, colony with with uh, population centers all over the the, uh, the far reaches of the place, and it was not very well connected. And they really had they, there were no newspapers being published here. There was no central forum for discussion. So that's one of several reasons that I think it's a little overlooked. And we'll we'll talk talk on some more as we go. Now I won't go through all the list of the, all the the governors of the colony. I want to mention two though. Uh, the first governor, George Johnstone, who arrived on the scene in 1764. He Really, he was a difficult guy to get along with, and everybody, everything that you look at in the records illustrate that, uh, that that he, he pretty much got sideways with everybody he worked with at some point. And so for, for that reason, he was eventually recalled. However, to his credit, he did bring to the colony a pretty clear vision for how the place could be built into a functioning, thriving colony and a lot of this wasn't you know just magic it was some pretty common sense things but he worked actively to promote immigration uh, get people to sell there to establish communication between the major communities to work to better trade and to work to establish good relationships with the Native Americans and we'll touch on the significance of that in just a second and that is the plan even though he eventually got removed that is the plan that all the other governors would attempt to follow with varying degrees of success. But Johnston was a difficult guy. At one point, his own guard at the Fort of Pensacola locked him out of his own house and he had to scale the wall to get into his own house. And an observer said at that point, you could tell the general opinion of, of uh, this gentleman. And he, so he was eventually recalled. The colony went through a series of governors all at the colonial capital in Pensacola, uh, which was the a major deep port, deep water harbor on the Gulf Coast, or still is, but it was the best place for ocean-going ships to get, and that's really the primary reason it was there. They eventually get to Governor Peter Chester. He's not universally loved, not universally successful, to, but to the degree that the colony finds political stability, they find it under him, and you can tell it by the years that he served. He served over half of the colony's period under the British flag. He was the leader. And so he did sort of calm the political waters and and was able to kind of keep things moving in the colony. Now, the paramount foreign relations concern for him, the other governors, and and what occupied a great deal of time of that elected assembly uh, was was not at first what's going on in other colonies. And we'll talk about that in, as we get throughout the presentation as well. But really, their foremost concern uh, just on a day-to-day survival is trying to make sure that they stay uh, with with good relationships with the Native Americans because at any given point in time, 1760s, early 1770s, you're talking about a, a, a colonial entity with an entire population, non-Native population of between 2,500 and 5,000 people. It's not a big place at first. On the other hand, just to their north are the neighbors, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Cherokee, Cherokee, the Chickasaw. All told, all together, at any point in time, that population probably would have run 60,000 people uh, with with warriors many times over what the British could ever bring uh, into any sort of colonial conflict. So that was a, a life and death 
sort of uh, diplomatic issue. And to their credit, they actually waged it pretty well. There's a whole lot more to the story that we don't have time to, to talk about the all the dynamics between Europeans and Native Americans at the time. But the, the overarching uh, connection between these two groups was really centered on trade. Uh, it was trade that the Europeans needed and desired, and it was trade for goods that the Native Americans very much wanted. Uh, things like guns, uh, tools, uh, especially metal items, um, hatchets, hoes, axes, cloth, things that were manufactured. And what they got in return for these very desired, very desirable goods, uh, they, they shipped to European cities, uh, deer skins primarily, other other skins as well, but deer skins, which one historian of the era has called the, the blue jeans of the day. These things were manufactured into leggings, book bindings, hats, gloves. Uh, they were So this relationship was happening right at the time where there was a great demand for what the Europeans uh, wanted from the Native Americans and a great demand on part of the Native Americans for, for what the Europeans could provide. And there's a lot of backstory to that and there's a whole lot to happen after, but this little snapshot of time when British West Florida is coming of age, this is sort of the height of the deerskin trade when thousands and thousands of deerskin uh, deer skins, processed deer skins are being shipped out of the ports of Pensacola and, and uh, Mobile and other places to Europe. Now, for the European settlers, the people who are coming to this colony to settle, and most of them are come, coming from other uh, British colonies in North America, especially the eastern seaboard, but several are coming from the West Indies, uh, and a handful are coming directly from Europe, small numbers. But all those folks are are doing is, is, is I like to point out all the things that you would think they were doing, even if you didn't know a great deal about the history of the era. They're farming. They're, they're, they're trying to make a living growing corn, chickpeas, rice, um, all the, 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 the things that you can associate with with agriculture in the deep south. Um, a surprising amount of them are earning their living through herding cattle and hogs, which were very big industries. In West Florida, um, all these communities of any sort needed ready sources of, of meat, milk, butter. Um, so that, that was a big industry. Uh, they tried their hand at growing tobacco with um, varying degrees of success. Uh, the major problems for West Florida was that the uh, better and larger supplies of tobacco were being grown elsewhere in the British colonies, especially in the Chesapeake region. So they had a hard time getting into the market for that product, they, they tried their hand. The, the ones who, who had the, the means to make it happen at growing indigo, which of course you know is ultimately through a very complicated production process, transformed into a blue dye that was very popular in European uh, manufacturing establishments at the time. Few people found success with this. And most of the people who did are people who were plantation owners that could command slave labor to do this sort of stuff. Very few of those people actually made a lot of money at it, but there were uh, uh, fairly large plantations in West Florida. This, when I when I use the word plantation, I, I'm a little bit hesitant because we so associate that word with the antebellum South, where we talk about you know hundreds of acres of cotton and, and dozens of slaves being employed to do this work. This is a much more modest sort of uh, plantation agriculture, and it's only a portion of the population of, of West Florida, but still. The days of the Deep South plantations, um, at least outside of New Orleans and the rest of the Deep South, the earliest ones you'll find on record date to this period. 
Uh, most of the people of West Florida, though, are not major plantation owners. They're certainly not wealthy. Uh, they are basically hard scrabble farmers, and a lot of them, a lot, find their most reliable source of economic stability to be in the timber industry. Have huge stands of longleaf pine, which were located in a wide belt across the whole colony and a lot of the deep south. Most of it's gone today. That longleaf pine is what we often refer to as heart pine. This is the sturdy, straight, really tight grained lumber that's just last forever. Um, these things were made, uh, these trees were used to make uh, ship mast and everything from barrel staves to, to building all kinds of construction and the pitch and the tar that's derived from uh, the, these uh, uh, pines as well was very uh, much in, in demand uh, for the naval industry. So uh, that is it's not the typical sort of agricultural uh, enterprise that you would associate with the period, but this this is the one of the surest ways to at least uh, make ends meet in British West Florida for a lot of people. On the screen, I have a map of the Mobile Tensile Delta uh, region, the Tangle Waterways just north of Mobile. It's the second largest delta system in the country. Of course, the Mississippi's is the only one that's larger. On the screen, I, what I've got is, is you can see the waterways and all those little rectangles are indications of this one little section of the river system where uh, all these farms were and at least these concessions were being mapped out. Now, that doesn't mean that on every one of them there was a functioning farm, a plantation, but it does mean that people were laying claim to them to, to bring under cultivation some portion of those uh, tracts of land, most often the ones right adjacent to the river. And I, I like to illustrate this just to simply to say that, yeah, West Florida was not uh, a, a leader in, in, in supplying agricultural products by any means compared to the other colonies, but an agricultural uh, economy was beginning to take shape and it was largely through the hard work um, and, and solicitation of, of, of uh, settlers by the British government. Now, even the largest of, the, of the, the plantation homes in West Florida probably would have looked like this. This is the uh, Krebs House in Pascagoula, built by the 1770s. It's very, very similar to the sort of architecture we've seen from the wealthiest West Floridians. Um, most of the interest in settling this area, once people got on the ground and figured out what was here, um, actually the Mississippi River Valley, the portion of it that, that really connected between what is now Vicksburg and Natchez, that was the some of the best land and that major um, corridor that drains half the country, uh, that became the object of a lot of people's fascination and that spurred immigration to develop farms a lot more robust um, for a time than what was north of Mobile. Uh, one of the governors of West Florida called it the most charming prospect in the world there on the Mississippi. Now, most of the people who are living in West Florida day to day are probably living in homesteads that look more like this. This is a, a, a illustration of a cottage down on Dolphin Island, which is just south of, of Mobile, sitting on the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you've got all, all the other problems West Florida has uh, that, that inhibit settlement at first. And the fact that this illustration shows that this is on an island that the French at first called Massacre Island, I like to point out that that probably was not Chamber of Commerce material for encouraging people to move to a far-flung colonial entity. 
but uh, but this is this is sort of an illustration of what your average homestead would have looked like. Now I mentioned that the British exerted a lot of effort to develop this colony, and there's really no better illustration of of how determined they were to make this work than their in their really uh, Herculean effort to do what is physically sounds impossible. They wanted to find a way to bypass the city of New Orleans and tap into the Mississippi River traffic because just on the other side of the Mississippi River was the Spanish colony of Louisiana. That's not British, British land, that's Spanish territory. So they wanted to be able to tap into all that and they figured out that in the right conditions, there's a little river that, that connects to the Mississippi that's really more of a ditch. But in, in wet weather, it, it was conceivable that that ditch could be expanded into a canal. And that canal could connect to Lake Maurepas and through a series of other small streams going to Lake Pontchartrain. And that in turn goes into the Gulf of Mexico. So they set to work with shovels and attempted to dig out a big canal in the middle of the swamp. Uh, and they tried for a long time, for several years, they sunk a lot of money and a, and a lot of time into the, into the effort because they were convinced that that would launch the colony forward by, by simply bypassing this major um, rival uh, community and bringing all the Mississippi River uh, traffic into British West Florida. Sounds a little bit crazy today. Uh, and, and to think that they persisted at it um, is one illustration of how, how serious they took this colony building. So West Florida never did flourish in the way that they had desired, but it certainly wasn't for a lack of trying. Now, the population growth is not going to blow you away. It's not spectacular. You're talking about a non-Indian population in 1765 of roughly 2,000 people. By 1775, is more than doubled, but it's still not, not impressive, really, by modern standards, about 5,500 people. Now, American Revolution comes, and it's going to have a big impact in West Florida. It's not necessarily in the ways most people think, but West Florida did play a pretty significant role in the conflict. I'm going to tell you about the, the three, two or three ways that it found the colony and how that the, the ways that it found the colony really shaped regional history. First of all, I know this audience is especially familiar with this sort of map that shows where the major campaigns of the Revolutionary War were. And, and we're so attuned to that that sometimes we forget that there was a British North America anywhere outside of the eastern seaboard. But there's some significant actions that happened down in West Florida that at least had very significant impact to the shaping of the Deep South. Um, we sometimes forget the Continental Congress met and it, it invited all the British colonies, of course, to participate. West Florida was extended an invitation. They politely declined. Uh, now, this was not necessarily because uh, they were ex extraordinarily loyal, as I'll explain. There was some talk, even going back to the Stamp Act, um, and, uh, the Governor George Johnstone talked about on the streets of Pensacola, he said, there's some talk here of, of this idea of liberty, what is there called liberty there, meaning the East Coast. Um, but as you go through time, you really find there's very little understanding or connection with the sympathies of, of the other colonies that eventually moved towards rebellion. Uh, most of these people are just simply trying to earn a living on a very far-flung frontier that's not very well connected with the rest of the empire, not even with the rest of the colony. They really viewed what was happening elsewhere as somebody else's problem. 
you've got a larger percentage than in most other colonies of the citizens in West Florida in the direct employee of the British government, soldiers, officials. And you just don't have the same rationale for, for rising in rebellion. Now, if the colony had reached a certain level of development, they probably would have. But the colony was very much depending on the British Empire to, to provide it what it needed to function day to day. And the information that came to it about what's happening elsewhere was not steady. It took a long, long time to get there, and they really felt detached from it. That's a little bit of oversimplification, but it's 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 a big reason I think we don't know as much about about the colony. I think that's one of the reasons that when it is mentioned in histories of the era, it's usually just described vaguely as a, as a loyal colony. It was loyal in the fact it did not open a rebel, but it was not loyal in the way that all the citizens were united to support the British war effort. They, they were united in trying to avoid the war. And uh, General John Campbell noted that when the colony was threatened by the Spanish during the war, he said, you know, in general, the inhabitants are self-interested without public spirit. These are folks who want to remain neutral. Now, the, despite all this, the British government was very happy to have any of its colonial holdings in North America that were not actively involved in rebelling. And when he noticed the relative calm that was happening down in Florida, the Earl of Dartmouth declared West Florida to be a secure asylum for persecuted loyalists and other colonies. And that's going to spark the biggest migration that the colony actually saw. If you, if you came to them and said, I'm being persecuted for my reluctance to join this, this, uh, this little rebellion here, you could get some pretty uh, stout uh, tracts of land for that. Heads of family, if you took a loyalty oath, could get 100 acres for themselves and 50 acres for your wife, each child, indentured servants or slave. So a lot of people took advantage of that, and a lot of those people moved to the Mississippi River Valley. That's when that area really exploded population. Now, the two military campaigns that reach, the, the, reach West Florida are going to really involve two two different wars almost. The first is a relatively minor event that had some implications for Great Britain. It's it's a, 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 it's really a raid by a gentleman named um, James Willie, and he was twisting the arms of, of officials. He had connections in the Continental Congress, and he had, he had formerly lived in the Natchez area, and he um, had heard some discussion uh, about the possibilities of opening up a front on the Gulf Coast in the war, there was some discussion of that in Congress, and they, they quickly came to the conclusion that we're, we're having a hard time defending the colonies in active rebellion um, that are being uh, oppressed from every corner here. We don't really have the resources to open up an entirety front in a colony that's not even participating in this thing. So that, that discussion really died down pretty quickly. But Willing said, hey, you know, I, if you give me a commission and, and, and the permission to raise a small group and, and a boat, I'll go down there, I'll secure the neutrality of, of that colony, keep them out of the war, although I would argue they were about as out of the war as they could possibly be. He said, I will go down to secure their neutrality and I will open up a line of communication between Spanish New Orleans and, and the American armies fighting the war uh, to, to funnel supplies back and forth because there was serious uh, support from the Spanish authorities in New Orleans being sent to the American armies and George Washington's armies and others. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep open that, that lifeline. So he comes down and he, he launches what is essentially 
supposed to be uh, an effort to secure the neutrality of the colony and do all these things. What he ended up doing was declaring that everybody who who uh, did not participate in the war would be protected. He puts the American flag up on the on the shores of, of the Mississippi and Natchez, and he probably goes about and destroys everybody's property that he can get hold of. He, he conducts a rape. Uh, he, he steals uh, silver. He steals uh, clothes. He steals uh, hams and raids smokehouses, and he does steal slaves. And he thinks he can do all this because if he goes to New Orleans, where Spain is not allied with the United States, but they're supporting the war because they're an enemy of Great Britain, he'll be allowed to sell it for free. And he had some other reasons that we don't really know. And that campaign of plunder happened very quickly, and it opened the British to the, to the fact that the two major facts. One, their colony was not all that well defended on this western border when this ragtag group could come through kind of wantonly plundering the area. And two, it opened the British to the, uh, their eyes to the fact that Spain was very determined to do what they could to hurt Great Britain in this war uh, through the colony of Spanish Louisiana, which was next door, and that they need to be on the lookout for any, for any opportunities Spain might have. And remember, so this is all Spanish Louisiana. The governor there, Bernardo de Galvez, was doing all of those things that the British feared. He was planning for if his government actually, um, you know, France had been involved in supporting the American war effort and France was allied with Spain, had been historically, they were doing the best they could to encourage Spain to join them in that effort. And Galvez, of course, through several channels of communication, understood that at some point his, his country, his home country, was going to, at, at minimum, um, declare war on Great Britain, even if it didn't officially say it supported the American rebellion because they had some hesitancy about that. They were, Spain was a colonial power itself. Um, so he knew this was probably going to happen. So rather than sit back and wait for it, he began planning for a military campaign that the moment he got word that Spain had declared war on Great Britain, he wanted to put it into action to take by conquest what Great Britain had lost after the Seven Years' War when they created the colony of West Florida. And so he sits by in the summer of, of uh, 1778, waiting for this to happen, 1779. And immediately when he gets word that the war had been declared, he, he launched this preemptive strike against, uh, the, against the British forces in West Florida before they even realized that they, they were under attack. He leaves New Orleans with a diverse force. He goes up the Mississippi. He, he captures a small fortification known as Fort Butte. He captures a much more substantial fortification after a short siege at Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 1779. And then in the surrender agreement in which, uh, the, which Baton Rouge was surrendered, he actually secures the surrender of Fort Pedmure up in Natchez. So this is a lightning quick campaign. He's captured all these fortifications before the British realized they were under assault. And you can imagine the surprise of the British commanders in Natchez being notified they, they were surrendered. And there were no Spanish army within 100 miles. But nevertheless, all this has happened. And he's, he, rather than just sitting on his laurels, he, he goes back to New Orleans and immediately begins plans for another campaign. He wants to look to the east. He wants to capture Mobile and Pensacola, the two primary fortifications and population centers in the colony. And it doesn't take the British very long to figure out that that's what he's doing. And they 
move as best they can to meet him. Uh, but he, he, am he amasses a pretty substantial uh, army. And the British, uh, you know, they're, they're distracted with a major war uh, against this, this upstart uh, country that's, that's trying to wage a war for its independence. And, and any supplies that are sent to their, that effort are, of course, going to hurt. West Florida or any supplies they try to send down to West Florida are going to hurt that effort. And, and the British saw the bigger threat happening on the East Coast. So West Florida did not receive the type of fortifications or the type of reinforcement that they wanted. And as a consequence, they moved very slowly to this response to this imminent threat um, from the Spanish in Louisiana. They, they arrive at, at, at Mobile and they lay siege to, to the fortification there uh, through a really uh, interesting campaign where they get into Mobile Bay. Uh, that, that, that's the same site there um, at Mobile Point where Farragut would, would enter Mobile Bay during the American Civil War and famously issue those words, damn the torpedoes, uh, full speed ahead. So you're talking a uh, hundred years earlier almost, uh, the Spanish had their own fortification uh, there at Mobile Point and they came into Mobile Bay, they drug all these gigantic cannon through the swamps south of Mobile and prepared to lay siege to this place, um, this fortification at Mobile. The British did their best to resist them. They were outnumbered several times over. Really what they wanted to do was buy time for a relief force from Pensacola to come to their aid. And that relief force was sent and it came to their aid just in time to see the last shots fired. Mobile Falls um, in March, uh, March 14th and uh, it, it's no Gettysburg here. There's there's this very low casualty count, but it's a very significant gain for Spain in this war. So what this leaves after this campaign is really West Florida is left with nothing but the capital of Pensacola, and they're going to throw all their resources into defending that capital. Now, interesting thing happens before that final campaign, though, and and this is right where I'm sitting, Daphne, Alabama, tonight, um, where that where it's labeled the village. Uh, Galvez goes back to, to uh, New Orleans to raise another army for this final campaign to capture this last stronghold in West Florida. He leaves a small outpost on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay under the command of one of his lieutenants to basically help consolidate Spanish control of Mobile, but more importantly, to watch for any advance by the, by the British in any potential effort to recapture what they had just lost at Mobile. And they actually did make an effort to do that and resulted the largest in the largest battle of the Revolutionary War, of course, fought in Alabama. Um, that fortification only had 175 or so men. The British determined to launch a, a combined forces operation, send some ships into to Mobile Bay to prevent reinforcement from Mobile, and then send a land force to attack this little fortification at this little, little crossroad community called the Village. And out of very foggy morning in early January of 1781, right at daybreak, they descend on this place with Indian allies, and they almost completely rout the Spanish before they could organize a defense. What happened, though, is that some of their primary leaders went down in successive shots, and that initial momentum was stalled. And you couldn't really figure out who was in command for a second, because the first and the second in command both went down. That was the, the bit of a break that the Spanish needed to bring their artillery into the action or actually organize a defense. And the, the Indian allies 
did not want any part of a regular stand-up European fight. They, they, once they saw that this was developing, it was going to be a stalemate. A lot of them left, and so you ended up with two forces that were much more evenly matched, and the Spanish are inside the fortification. And after a few hours of fighting, the, the British were forced to withdraw. So even in that attempt to take back Mobile, they had been turned away. And so uh, immediately, I mean, just, just a few days later, Galvez arrives, prepared to move on uh, Pensacola. And the, the British are, have now withdrawn everything they have into the fortifications at Pensacola. There are several. It's not one fortification. Now, Galvez is going to arrive at uh, in Pensacola Bay. He's, he's uh, going to uh, want to immediately move into the bay. He's got a naval force with him, but that naval flotilla is not under his direct command, only his colonial flotilla of about three ships are under his command. He says, I'm going to go straight into the bay. The Navy flotilla says, we don't know where the guns are or where the, the depth of the channel. We're not, we're not ready to do this. We need to scout this out. And Galvez says, you know, we, we delay on this. It's going to enable them to make a stronger fortification. We need to go ahead immediately. And so he takes his small command and he goes into Pensacola Bay by himself with the Navy watching, sort of shames them into following him in there, um, braves this gunfire from the British batteries, and for his bravery in leading the assault uh, into Pensacola Bay, he eventually is going to have a, an additional uh, uh, pennant on his coat of arms. If you can see there on the, on the center right, you see a, a gentleman on the ship. Uh, that's him. And above it is a, is a pennant that says, Yo Solo, I alone. So that's when he earned that sobriquet um, and, and became a, a hero uh, to the Spaniards and to the Americans uh, that's remembered to this day. Now, once he gets into Pensacola Bay, he, he begins a long siege. It's March to May of 1781. And he has a very large army uh, for, at least by Revolutionary War standards, certainly by the Gulf Coast. He originally had about 4,000 troops. He will ultimately have, when the French send some forces to assist him, about 7,000 guys. And that ranks as the largest battle ever fought in the state of Florida to this day, even larger than any, any battles of the Civil War. And you can see on this map, I've got a Pensacola, that's modern Pensacola with the fortifications overlaid there. Um, that is uh, where the campaign took place, March to May of 1781. It culminates with this one shot that hits a powder magazine in one of the British fortifications, blows the whole thing up, kills about 100 guys, and the British were left with no fort to defend. And so by military force, Galvez had taken over British West Florida piece by piece, and British West Florida became Spanish West Florida. And that is the border uh, you see down at the bottom between Spanish West Florida and the new young United States after the Revolutionary War. There's a brief discussion between the United States and the Spanish about who, where that border should be. Should it be at 31st parallel or should it be further north where the British had, had claimed it? Spain eventually pulled back. And as soon as they pulled back, that area that's crosshatched down there uh, just north of Mobile comes into American possession and they immediately create a new territory out of it called uh, the Mississippi Territory, and that's the origins of the states of Mississippi and Alabama. So that's a, a little quick history uh, of British West Florida, its time in the British Empire. Um, uh, the book that, that I'm talking about is, of course, available online everywhere else, New South Books. Um, if anybody is interested in a signed copy or talking to me about it, I've got my email up there. Be glad to talk with you and 
and uh, mail anything to you. But I appreciate the opportunity to come. I look forward if there's any questions I can answer. And I, I hope I shared with you a little bit of a story that, that maybe you aren't quite as familiar with. Thank you. Yeah, that was really interesting. I don't know much about the history of Florida. I've started like learning a little bit more about it this year. So this was great to hear about. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Allie. She is going to help moderate our Q&A. If you have a question, drop it into the chat box so she can see it. Great. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Mike. That was very, very interesting. I, um, like Sarah, just in the past year, learned more about the history of Florida uh, as it relates to the 18th century. Um, so that uh, expanded upon my knowledge. So the first question I have for you is, what was the landscape like in West Florida when the British first arrived? You mean like the physical landscape? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's that's a that's a, a wide area. You know, you were stretching all the way from the Florida coast at the beach, all the way up into central Alabama, and all the way to the Mississippi River. So, it was an area that that with original um, uh, forest growth uh, that we've lost a lot of that. With the longleaf pine dominated a huge swath of that territory. The coastal regions, of course, had no development at all, and the British really didn't see much hope because. The coast is not the best place to grow crops, but it is a place to to anchor ships in the right right harbors. And so they were intrigued with the possibilities of the land, not because of what was right there necessarily, but because of the incredible amount of river systems that emptied into the Gulf of Mexico. Like I said, you know, the Mobile Bay, uh, that that the Mobile Basin, um, I forgot all the stats, but it's an enormous amount of of a square area that enters into that millions and millions of gallons is the second largest delta in the country and then the mississippi river is a part of this colony as well so you've got all these rivers in the deep south that are emptying into this area and they recognize even if they didn't control all the land that there's some pretty rich land in the interior and all the commerce could potentially go up and down those rivers and so the rivers dominated the landscape the lovely pine and then, um, of course, the coastal areas. Great. Um, my next question is, um, was you mentioned that uh, in the colony, everybody was kind of spread out um, in little clusters. There was nothing really centralized. Was there any sort of national identity uh, for people living in West Florida? Or did they first and foremost consider themselves British? First and foremost, British. Um, the, an identity as, as West Florida um, was very slow in coming. Uh, the, the, as I mentioned, these people are, are scattered, living sort of separate lives in, in a lot of ways. Mobile and Pensacola were the only major urban entities of any sort, and those towns at the time had three or 400 citizens. And these people would have either identified with themselves as British or had taken an oath of loyalty to the British. But a lot of these, the, the, there's just really not a collective sense of, of a distinct British West Florida uh, culture. And a lot of the people that travel through talk about that, that the, these people are just out here trying to earn a living apart from the rest of civilization was the, was the way that they understood their day-to-day -day life. So it, it's, 
it's a it's an interesting way to understand the colony but i always like to mention that this colony that didn't exist until 1763 and it's engulfed in war for its last three years of its life and it's only around for less than 20 years it would have been interesting to see how it would have been able to develop had it been founded earlier or lasted longer but as it was it was a very quick moving time period but really didn't have the opportunity to develop a distinct local culture i'd say so this is uh, kind of similar you mentioned um earlier that it took a while to build the colony up about how long was that and what goes into building a colony well the uh the when it was first founded in 1763 you know you didn't even get the governor and the officials uh, in office on the ground until 1764 and into 1765. To build the colony really requires having a government in place to enforce everything from uh, how uh, settlement takes place and how land is granted to um, having uh, laws about uh, trade and commerce to establishing ports and, and customs collection facilities. And, and most crucially to having the military wherewithal on the ground to enforce law and order uh, by British authorities. And that took some time uh, and it never really got to where they wanted it to. And when it finally did, it was kind of a rushed into being because they were under threat of attack by a foreign nation. So they had major fortifications in Pensacola, Mobile, and of course on the several on the Mississippi River in that region. And they hope to do a lot more. Uh, the colony, I would say, in all fairness, never really got to the state of development that they had wanted it to. Uh, it, it was getting there. It wasn't uh, through any lack of trying. It was going through the natural growth that any colonial entity goes through, but they're taking over a place in 1763 with almost no infrastructure. And they were trying to establish that physical and, and political and military all within an area that was really, really widely scattered, not all that well connected, and it kind of came in fits and starts. And by the time the war came, uh, some of the, 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 the problems they had encountered in making all that happen were exposed very quickly by the Spanish. You kind of yeah. the next question, which was, um, do you think the colony was ever finished being no, built? Or no, do you think- Not even close, no, no, absolutely not. They. Um, they had they had a lot of grand plans and a lot of grand ideas, just like every if you read the history of any of these American colonial entities, you know, they grow over time and, and they, they kind of adapt to the circumstances and they experience immigration and open up new opportunities. Well, West Florida had less than two decades to do all that. So, no, it, it did not reach a full development, but it did attain a level of distinction where you could see the pattern of development. And I would say that that pattern is a pattern that more than the French, they, they kind of put on this region and that pattern of development, you can trace the origins of all the way to the American period, through the Spanish period into the early American period. Most of the, the major communities um, that date back to the colonial era, um, a lot of the, the, the trading routes, all, all these things that we associate with this early time period really goes back to this, this British period in the Gulf South. And that's something I think a lot of people forget because this, the French were, of course, here. And there was a French colony that Mobile for a brief period was the capital of, but the French uh, never, never put the same amount of resources into 
developing that specific area of the Gulf Coast as the British did. So that British stamp on the time period is important to this region's history. A lot, it's a lot more important than I think most people realize. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what would have brought the colonists, like what would have attracted them to West Florida specifically? Uh, land, uh, almost free land or free land. Uh, it was, they were, had some very, very generous land grants they were handing out to people. And um, the, the land grants came with a number of small fees that you were supposed to pay and they even waived those, or they would say, you know, the, the $5 roughly that it would take you to, to, to lay claim to some of these tracks uh, could be deferred for three years or something. So it was almost free land. And a lot of the people who came, there are two groups of people really. You've got individual farmers who see an opportunity that for whatever reason, don't feel like they've got that same opportunity where they are. And there's some, some that really or in some desperate circumstances to take advantage of it. And then there's other groups that are purely speculations. They're, they're pure speculators that have very wealthy people in other places and they buy up some of the tracks and they try to encourage other people to settle them and they want to create their own cities, et cetera, but they're not actually moving here. There's a lot of that that happened. There's enormous tracts of land that were, that were ultimately given or purchased by very wealthy individuals. And some of those people tried to develop their own immigration schemes. There was one that came out of Connecticut and uh, organized a group to move down to the Mississippi River. And one of the guys um, who actually was a part of that scheme, I've got his story in the book, it's, it's really sad. Eh? Uh, between, between Connecticut and when he actually finds his place he's supposed to have on the Mississippi River, his wife dies, he sees two of his children drown, and he finally arrives at the plot of land that's supposed to be his on the Mississippi River, and he discovers that someone else already is living on it. So it was a, it was a difficult task to get here, and so the people who were doing this, um, who actually were settling, not the people who were speculating on it, uh, most of them are coming to pursue economic, economic opportunity that they did not have elsewhere. That makes perfect sense. Um, I have a couple more questions. Um, how large was the enslaved population in West Florida? I didn't hear the last part of that. Um, how large was the enslaved population? Oh, um, at any given point, it would be a fair estimate to say about a third of the population. So when I think I've got that 1765 figure is roughly 2,500 people all told. So you're talking about an enslaved population that is perhaps a thousand people, um, pretty significant portion of the population. Uh, but but this this is this is the predates that that large uh, cotton cultivation era in which you're going to see the slave population uh, be a lot more than half of the Gulf Coast. But it's it's a pretty significant amount and it grows over time. Um, as these, because what happens is some of the people get these large land holdings are the very people that can bring 12 to 20 slaves at the time in, which was an enormous amount at, at, at that time. Um, a lot of the first settlers are arriving with either no slaves or if they had one, they have an indentured servant and things like that. So as the colony gets more attention, as the Mississippi River Valley opens up, that's when you start to have a larger percentage of the slave population. Great, that makes perfect sense. Um, you uh, mentioned Massacre Island early on. Do we know anything about the origin of that name? Yeah, the, the French discovered Dolphin Island back when they were scouting out a place to, 
to land uh, back in uh, 1699, and uh, they they discovered Dolphin Island as an anchorage. And when they stepped ashore, they were greeted. One of the first things they saw was a big pile of bones. And they, they at first called it Massacre Island. And later they, they realized, or historians have realized it was actually due to a disease epidemic and people had come down there and, 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 and tried to sort of separate themselves. They didn't quite understand the way things were spread, but they knew enough to kind of quarantine people in a certain area. But the name Massacre stuck. And uh, that's unfortunate, I think, for Dolphin Island's early history because that's hard to encourage people to come settle in humid, subtropical, hurricane and mosquito-ridden Massacre Island. Yeah, it doesn't sound super enticing. Um, so this is gonna be my last question, and I think it's the most important. Um, if you could dine with anybody at France's Tavern, who would you choose? Oh my goodness. Well, that would be a fascinating question. I, I, I tell you, I saw your upcoming lecture is, is uh, featuring a, a discussion of George Washington's final years. I've always thought he's one of the most fascinating people in history. And uh, I know he spent a good bit of his time in New York at various times. And I, I'd like to like to kind of listen to him talk for a little bit. Good answer. All right, uh, thank you, Mike, for the lecture and all those great answers. Thank you, Allie, for doing our Q&A. And thank you to all of you for joining us this evening. We're so happy you can continue to join us virtually. Um, our next lecture, if you're interested, is on May 20th. Tickets are available now for registration. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. You help us keep our public programs alive, even when we can't be together in the same room. Uh, if you would like to donate, you could do that at our website, francistavernmuseum.org. There you can also find all of our social media handles and join our mailing list to stay up to date on new events. Allie has just helpfully dropped the link to the next lecture in the chat. You can grab that before we go if you're interested. Um, as I said, this lecture was recorded and you will receive an email with the recording of it in just a few days. So um, that's it. Thank you all for spending your evenings, afternoons, wherever you are in the world with us at Francis Tavern Museum. And we hope to see you again at one of our virtual programs soon.